1: There's going to be millions and millions and millions and millions of people gathered around the throne singing, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty." That's a qua. <laughs> Where the qua? That's a qua. Singing to the Lord." And so the song goes, we just read it. "The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. Notice he doesn't say the Lord gives strength. We've pointed this out in the past. The Lord gives strength. He says the Lord is my strength. You see that? I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, how strong is a believer? I say it with reverence, Spurgeon says, he is as strong as God. The Lord is my strength. God, the infinite Jehovah in the Infinity of His nature is our strength. Remember, don't ask the Lord to give you strength. Ask the Lord to be your strength. God gives you strength; that means you're going to run out of strength. When you run out of strength, you be asking God to give you more strength. How about saying this: God, be my strength, my circumstance, my situation, my problem, my trouble my Red Sea experience, God be my strength. And you don't have to go back and ask for more strength. God will just be your strength. Notice he says, not only is God his strength, but he also says, the Lord is my song. He's my song. You know, someone once wrote this, and I like this. The Lord is the giver of our song. He breathes the music into, our, into the hearts of his people. He is the creator of their joy. The Lord is also the subject of our song. We sing of him and of all that he does on their behalf. And the Lord is the object of our song. They sing unto the Lord. Our praise is meant for him alone. Don't you love that? He's my song and he's my salvation. Isn't it interesting? Israel couldn't sing the Lord is my salvation until now. Did you notice that? They couldn't sing that until now. Before they saw the enemy dead, powerless, and washed up on the beach, they couldn't say God is my salvation, but now they know God as one who saves because they have seen his salvation. You know, a lot of times God lets us go through things so that we can have a testimony and we can say, I know God is my salvation because he saved me. I know God is a healer because he healed me. That's why I reject totally, completely, vehemently the whole teaching of, you know, divine healing for every single person. If you're ever sick, you, sh- you know, you're sin and you, you, you know, you, you just lack faith. And I reject that. Listen, sometimes God will allow you to be sick so he can heal you. Goodness. So you can say, I know him as a healer. You can't say that if you've never been sick. Good grief. And now they say he's my salvation because they know him as such. But they could not say that prior to this Red Sea experience. You understand? Say amen. Amen. It's very important to understand that. You know, one of my favorite, here's my new favorite quote. Here's my new favorite quote. Corey Ten Boom said this, you will never realize that the Lord is all you need until the Lord is all you have. Amen. Woo! That's good. You will never realize the Lord is all you need until you realize the Lord is all you have. That's great, and that's true. Well, notice they go on to say in the song, "The Lord is a man of war." In verse three, and there's a lot of people who don't like this verse, y'all, and 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 they don't like the thought of God being a god of war, and, and they, you know a lot of people like to think of God as a god of love. You know, God's got a love, and He is, and God is a god of you know compassion, and He is, and God is. A nice God, and he is. But listen, I thank God that God is a man, a God of war. Why? Because there's a lot of spiritual enemies out there that I need him to fight for me. (laughs) You understand? So I thank God he's a man of war. He is a God of war because he's fighting for me and he's giving me the victory. Well, notice the second stanza of the song. I got to move on. Look at verse six. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces and in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath it consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright. How did God do it? With the blast of his nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depth congealed. Remember I told you that means what? Make solid. In the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desires shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Notice the second stanza. You could title it. You have overthrown those who rose against you. And so Moses says, God defeated their enemies. He says, your right hand is glorious in power and has dashed the enemy in pieces. Now, the right hand in the Bible was thought to be, listen, the the hand of skill and power. When God works with his right hand, it's a work of skill and it's a work of power. And we all know that God is spirit. We all know that God doesn't have a hand. But... The Bible uses humans to try to explain God. And they call that an anthropomorphism. No, I'm not speaking in tongues. An anthropomorphism. So we're trying to describe God's power. We're trying to describe God's skill. So Moses says, Your right hand using the hand like the eyes of the Lord over the righteous. God is spirit. God doesn't have an eye or eyes. God doesn't have a nose, but he blew. You understand these are anthropomorphisms. We are using it to try to explain God, the nature and character of God. And so Moses talks about God's right hand. The Bible has a lot to say about the right hand. Do you know this right hand is used more than fifty times in the Bible? Psalm forty five verse four, God's right hand teaches us. Psalm forty eight verse ten, God's right hand is full of righteousness. Psalm seventy seven ten, remembrance of the years of the right hand of the Most High. Psalm one pardon me one ten verse one. The Father invites the Son to sit at his feet right hand. Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Chapter two, verse 16, the cup of God's judgment is held in his, you guessed it, right hand. Ephesians chapter one, verse 20, Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of the father. So the Bible has a lot to say about the right hand, trying to describe God's power, God's strength, God's skill. But I love verse eight. Would you look at it again with me in verse eight? I love verse 8, and and certainly I don't mean to sound uh, sacrilegious in my uh, following comments, but I love verse 8 because it tells us that God destroyed the greatest army in the world when he blew his nose. That's what it says. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's all it takes to put down the enemy. All God needs to do is blow his nose. I mean, that ought to put your problems in perspective. <laughs> We're going to leave that alone. Look at verse 11. You there? Say amen. amen. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? I don't have time to like deal with every section here, so we'll, we'll just uh, get to what we can. Where was I? Okay. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Well, that's verse 11. I need some new glasses. Who is like you, glorious and holy and fearful and praises doing wonders? I've read that. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. That's the third stanza, guys. And you could title that, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. If the people of Egypt still didn't know who the Lord was, we learn from this that Israel did. They knew the Lord was not like any other god. He was not like any of the false gods of Egypt or Canaan the third stanza. Here's the fourth stanza in verse 14 through 19. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. And that would be what? Who? The Philistines, the chief, then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling will take hold of them and all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Mm. Whom you have purchased. You will bring them in, in verse 17, and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever, for the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So the fourth stanza, The people will hear and be afraid. So when the Canaanites heard of what happened to the Egyptians, they were afraid and their hearts melted. The inhabitants of the land heard of the Egyptian army that was destroyed in the sea and the people heard that the cloud led them by day and the fire by night and the Canaanites, the unbelievers, they were afraid. And and notice here, I want to share something with you that we need to be clear about. God didn't do all this because they deserved it. We talked about that. God clearly brought them through the sea because of his grace. Psalm 106, verse 6 through 8. I love this psalm. It says, we have sinned with our fathers, making it clear We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, here's God's grace. He saved them. Why, saints? For his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. In other words, God brought them Out of Egypt, not because they deserved it and not even because they asked. He bought them out of Egypt for his namesake. Remember, he bought them out of Egypt so that he could show the Egyptian gods that they were not gods. He bought them out of Egypt for his glory. We got to get that because I think there's a grace message in that. And I think that there's a, a freedom in that that, that, that we don't have to deserve anything. Amen. I've been in ministry for, I don't know, 19, 20 years now. And I've been a Christian for 24. And I think I'm just getting it. To tell you the truth, I'm just getting it. God does what God does, not because we deserve it. I mean, I know it, but I think I know it more now. God does what God does because he does it for his namesake. And that's why we need to share with people. and We need to tell people of the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the loving kindness of God. Because God does what he does in our lives for his namesake. Therefore, we should give him glory for it. I hope that makes sense. For his namesake, he does it. And notice in verse 20. I love these next couple of verses. Look at verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron. So they finished the song, right? And now Miriam, she steals her brother's song. Look what she does. It's pretty funny. The prophetess, the sister of Aaron, she took a timbrel, a tambourine in her hand, and all... All the women went out after her with tambourines and with dances, and Miriam answered them. Right? So she answered them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now listen, this is the first time Miriam is mentioned by name, and she is described as a prophetess and the sister of Moses. And Miriam, I mean, she's been through a lot with her brother. This is the same Miriam, her sister, who saw her brother put in a basket and sent downstream. She saw this, and she's been following him ever since. She follows him through the Red Sea. And notice her brother writes a song. She takes the song, grabs a tambourine in her hand, she, 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 she got a bunch of ladies. Notice the Bible says, and all the ladies. Remember, there's 2.5 million people. We know from previous texts that there was at least 600,000 men, not including women and children. So we could easily say that there's four 500,000 women with a tambourine in their hand, singing and dancing. Which I should note, this is a message, please take this in the right context. This is a message for my Baptist brothers and sisters. They're dancing. (sighs) Say it ain't so. They're dancing. It's okay to dance. Say amen, saints. Now I'm not telling y'all to go to the club. Please hear me. That's not what pastor's saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, it's okay to dance. Because y'all know what I think about Christians and dancing. Some can, some can. These ladies obviously could. And they went out dancing and rejoicing. And and you might want to note, too, that Miriam is about 90 years old right now. She ain't no spring chicken, and she's, you know, she. (laughs) You know, I'm going to tell you something, though. Miriam was, I bet she was spry. I mean, just spry. Today, I went to lunch, Elvira and I, with a lady. Her name is Wincy. I talk about Wincy because I love Wincy. And Wincy goes to this church. And Wincy turned 80 today. And she had a birthday lunch. And they invited Elvira and I some weeks ago and got it on the calendar and, and, uh, I was just determined to get there, and uh, we went and had lunch, and it was like the best lunch ever. I mean, they had really good food, and uh, <laughs> I mean, her birthday was cool, too, and everything like that, but, <laughs> and her thing. <everything>. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and and this guy, we walk in, and this guy, he's got like an accordion, and they're in there doing accordion worship and it was the coolest thing you know singing when they had hymnals and 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 i don't know the youngest person there was probably i don't know maybe i don't know 60 65 70 maybe and uh but it was really really wonderful and we sat around and a lot of those ladies were missionaries had been missionaries in, in countries in romania we talked about romania and and europe and and uh africa and uh what a wonderful wonderful time that was to just sit around and and talk and uh and, and so i i actually had to leave and it was kind of interesting when i left it was like two people were like knocked out sleep you know <laughs> i'm talking like oh it was it was really fun, it was cute. And it was a couple too, they were sleeping together. <laughs> I kid you not, I'm talking sleep like we had like food, like food, like lettuce and tomatoes and onions on this plate, and they had turkey and they had green beans. And, and one couple would just sleep, they were just like knocked out like the lettuce and tomatoes right here, and they were just like, so I go back in the kitchen. I'm not kidding you. I go back in the kitchen. And I, I mean, I go in and I, I I was going in to say goodbye. And I said, well, you know, I, I I'm just I'm just sticking my head in one last goodbye, you know. And uh, I, they were knocked out. And and so I I just said, you know, I think we're just gonna be leaving now. I went back in the front room and I said to the. To, to one family member, I said, I, I think you better get in there. I mean, I mean they were just knocked out. So. And uh, I don't even know why I told you all that. And, uh, <laughs> but it was funny, and it was wonderful. And, you know, 90 years old, here we have Miriam, and she's, she's, she's pretty spry. I mean, she's dancing and rejoicing and, and singing. And look at verse 22. And uh, moving right along, verse 22, so Moses brought Israel, and look at verse 22, brought, brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went into the wilderness, notice, of sure, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water, and when they came, saints listened, to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were, what, bitter, Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. Mara means bitter. And the people complained against Moses saying, see, the people complained against Moses saying, what shall, Pastor Moses saying, what shall we drink? And so he cried out to the Lord, good thing, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it, the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Therefore, he made a statute and an ordinance for them And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. Why? For I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, And so they encamped there by the waters. Now, stop right there. Give me your attention. Keep in mind, when they came out of Egypt, the first stop they made was at Sukkoth. Remember, we talked about this. They stopped at Sukkoth. And then the second stop they made was at Etham. And it was at the edge of the wilderness. The third stop they made was at the Red Sea. And the fourth stop we have here in our text, the wilderness of shore, which means wall. Shore means wall because there was a mountain on their left and the Red Sea at this point would have been on their right. And so we are three days after the Red Sea victory. And now they are in the wilderness. Listen, listen. They come in the wilderness with excitement, expectation, energy. And they don't notice the heat after the first day. And then the second day. And the second day, they probably have a little dry mouth. And then the third day. And they realize they have no water. And when they finally found water, I'm sure that they were excited. But when they took the water and tasted the water... The water was bitter. It was undrinkable. It's mara, meaning bitter.
0: You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at one 800 293-0923 be salt and light
1: Let